everybody. Welcome to episode 166 of the Man of Screen podcast. I am your host, Mike Zumo, and this is it. Three episodes and counting until we are complete season one of Superboy, the Alexander Salkind uh, produced series, which ran from 1988 until 1992. And I must say, I'm very excited about getting toward uh, the end of season one because that means, obviously, we means we move on to season two. And I am definitely excited about putting this first season behind me. I've got two episodes on tap t- today, Mutant, episode 21, and episode 22, Phantom of the Third Division, which bears a resemblance, at least in the appearance of the character, to the Phantom of the Opera. That's uh, Phantom of the Third Division. It is a story that introduces us to the fact that Jonathan Kent fought in uh, a previous war. This show will establish that it is uh, the Korean War. Probably Jonathan would have had to have been a little bit too old to have fought in World War II at this point. So, yeah, there's uh, there's that coming up. But before I get to uh, the business at hand of this week's episode, I have feedback to address. My only bit of feedback for this episode is from Dave McElvenny. Dave's writing in on Man of Screen episode 155, in which I talked about Countdown to Nowhere and Bringing Down the House. That would have been episodes 5 and 6 of Superboy. Dave writes, Greetings, Mike. I think Countdown to Nowhere is a decent first episode for Superboy, but doesn't really have a lot to recommend as an episode five of the first season. I guess we may never know why it wasn't aired as the first episode. I liked how you pointed out the uh, difference in Lana's opinion of her dad from this episode versus the Duel of Techakal. I guess serious continuity was not yet a concern in episodic TV at this time. Bringing down the house, aside from its mistakes about how a baseball game was run, was, as you noted, an odd mix of standard bad guy plot and really dark and creepy bad guy plot i wonder if at some point in the writing someone realized that if leaf garrett's character's name was faust and they decided they needed to add some sort of devilish element to his story it did seem odd to me that they'd give him such a name but not have any real reference even obliquely to the classic faust story about selling one soul to the devil maybe that was a misdirect to fool people like me who think of too much of such things another thing i guess we'll never know Live long and prosper, Dave. Well, as always, uh, thank you, Dave, for writing in. Yeah, I mean, I covered this a great deal when I spoke about Countdown to Nowhere, is that, no, it has nothing to offer as the fifth episode of the series. So it is kind of inexplicable why it was aired as episode five and uh, not episode one. I mean, as an individual episode of the show, it doesn't really have a whole lot to offer anyway, but it would have definitely served as a better introductory episode than... The Jewel of Techakal did. I mean, it must have been very weird. And, uh, you know, shows are sent to the network or the syndicator. This one, this particular show had gone to a syndicator with a particular airing order in mind. So, I don't know. It just makes no sense that this would have aired as episode five and not one. And Dave liked how I pointed out the difference in Lana's opinion of her dad in this episode versus uh, The Jewel of Techakal. I don't even remember what her opinion of her dad was in this episode, but I guess she had a higher opinion of him here than uh, she did in, te- in the uh, Techakal episode. And as far as uh, bringing down the house, uh, Dave pointed out my comments on the mistakes about how a baseball game was run. It's really a, a nothing issue if you're uh, not involved with baseball in any way, but as a sports writer, at least on the high school level, and I have knowledge of how uh, upper-level sports are run, it just stood out to me about how and how not like the reality that was. It's almost like whenever I watch uh, newsrooms in the movies, especially Superman-related stuff, 
yeah, that is not how newspapers work. I don't mention it because otherwise I would just kind of go down that rabbit hole and never come out. I might point out certain things here and there that I see, but if I sat and talked about uh, how the Daily Planet is run versus what I've seen from the way actual newspapers are run, we'd be here all day and I'd never get to the episodes. So uh, as far as bringing down the house goes with uh, the name of the Faust character, I don't know. I mean, yeah, it had some devilish elements to his story with the uh, his penchant for collecting screams, but I don't know. It just seemed like the episode had, oh, we, we, have, we have a few minutes. Let's uh, throw this uh, weird plot with the rock star in there, and I don't know. I'm not sure. Uh, you know, Dave, yeah, well, I guess Dave is guilty of thinking too much about these things. As podcasters and fans and people who probably consume these things a little too much, we probably are guilty of thinking far more about these things than we probably should, probably more than the creators themselves have. But, you know, that is what it is. kind of comes with the territory. But at this point, I really have nothing else to add, so I'm going to take a quick break, play a podcast promo, and when I come back, we'll discuss episode 21 of season one of Superboy, Mutant. The Fire and Water Podcast Network is a collection of super friends plus shag, so what could be more appropriate than a podcast about the super friends? It's For All Mankind, a Super Friends podcast, a read-through show about the classic DC comic book series covering all 47 issues of the original run, plus a few surprises. Hosted by me, Rob Kelly, and a rotating group of my Super Friends. Coming soon from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. It all looks good to me. All right, welcome back, folks. We're going to start things off with Mutant. This is episode 21 of season one. Original broadcast date was April 22nd, 1989. It was directed by Joe Ravitz, written by Michael Morris. Guest cast included Sky Aubrey as Vora, Edgar Allan Poe IV as Adio, and I did some looking around the internet, probably for longer than I intended to, but I found online no evidence that the man here listed as Edgar Allan Poe IV is in fact related to Edgar Allan Poe, the author, I do not believe that Edgar Allan Poe had any children. Maybe, so maybe he is a descendant of some other branch of the Poe family, but he is listed as Edgar Allan Poe IV. So that jumped out at me uh, pretty much immediately in the credits. Jack Swanson as Professor Greg Lipcott. Sandra Von Johnson as Secretary 1989. Bill Welter as Toll. And Tanya Roberts as the college student. And our synopsis is brought to you by SupermanHomePage.com your number one source for Superman information on the web. While covering a poetry recital with DJ, Clark witnesses the abduction of nuclear physicist Professor Craig Lipcott. Clark changes to Superboy and follows the kidnappers to the roof in time to see them enter a large, box-like object. When the woman leading the kidnappers notices the hero, she attacks him with a beam that disorients him. After recovering, Superboy is shocked that the, the box they had entered with the professor has vanished. In the office of the FBI, Clark tries to explain what he saw. Let me understand this, young man. If these kidnappers were unarmed... He didn't say that. He said they weren't carrying guns. You insist on sticking with this strange business about the jewelry. Yeah, they were rings. Rings, right. Rings that zapped you with ray beams. They left me stunned. I, I looked up in, in, the, in the ship and, and the kidnappers, they were all gone. I want to do a drug test on this kid. I don't do drugs. I can vouch for that. I'll vouch for both of them. 
Look, these are journalism students. They're trained to be objective observers. Oh, I'll make a note. If these creatures are so strange, why didn't you take photographs? That's what you're studying, photojournalism? I, I wasn't with Clark. I mean, I was covering a poetry recital. Actually, I never made it to the poetry recital. I, I, there were just too many photo opportunities standing around outside the door. <laughs> Objective observation, Harris. This is hardly what I'd call a credible witness. It's just a personality defect I have. When I try to come across sincere, it doesn't work. I mean, that's why I don't do presents in my comedy act, I mean. Look, kid, why don't you quit while you're ahead? Now, Kent, you say you saw the professor put into a spaceship. I don't know what kind of ship it was, but yes. Well, suppose I tell you there have been no aircraft sightings of any kind on any radar screen in the immediate vicinity. I believe you. And yet, you're telling me that you saw this spaceship land on the roof. He told you he didn't see it land. It was already sitting there. Make a note. Now. When you went to help the professor, this uh, woman that you described pointed her rings at you, you became disoriented, and then when you could see straight, this vehicle went bye-bye. I don't know where it went, but it went, yes. Without a single radar bleep? I wish I could explain it, I'm sorry. You'll have plenty of time. I want them held for further questioning. I said I'd vouch for them. I'm releasing them under their own recognizance. Back at the paper, Clark discovers that Lipcott is an expert in the field of nuclear physics, and Lana suggests the boys may be able to learn more if they investigate the nuclear plant that she has been invited to tour. Inside the box, which is revealed to be a time machine, Lipcott awakens to see two strange-looking humanoids and a woman. Professor Lipcott, we have gone to a great deal of trouble to bring you here. You. You attacked me, you and these, these mutants. Uh, she is the mutant. Where are you from? What do you want of me? Plutonium. What? We need plutonium, Professor. And since you are the leading expert in that field in this era, you have access to it. Plutonium is not a thing people keep or give away like a Christmas present. It's absurd. No, it deal. There's no necessity for pain yet. Always with the reasonable approach for her. Yes, but I get results. We don't have time to be too reasonable. I, I don't know what planet you're from, but here we consider what you're doing to be torture. We are from this planet, from the 24th century. You will get us what we need. It will not affect you in this time. But your technology is so advanced. Why did you come back here for plutonium? There is none left on Earth in our time, nor the materials with which to make it. Plutonium is the main component of nuclear weapons. Exactly. And we need it to defend ourselves against our enemies who wish to destroy us. I'm sorry. I refuse to participate in that obscene process again. You will take us to where the plutonium is stored. You will get us through the alarm system. Oh, absolutely not. At the plant, without Lana, Clark and TJ separate in order to cover more ground, and TJ is abducted because kidnappers believe they can lure Superboy to his rescue. I must tell you what a great pleasure this is for me to interrelate with you guys. I have, I've always been a great fan of aliens. I mean that. Because when you come right down to it, an alien is just a friend you haven't met yet. Am I right or am I right? Right. 
He speaks much but says nothing. Live and let live. That's my motto, huh? You know, I can see you folks as a really great photo essay for National Geo. He amuses. Well, thanks for saying that. Uh, that's, that's really nice, because I plan on getting into comedies. One of the... Comedy is my life, actually. Uh, right now, for instance, I'm working on my impression of the president's. Laura finds him amusing. Perhaps we should take him back as her pet. No, no, I... No, um, I have no pedigree. Uh, see, my, my, my father was a male, my mother was from the opposite sex. It was a really bad combination, really bad. You notice, the mouth never stops moving. Perhaps, young man, you can convince the professor to help us. If he does, no harm will come to him. Professor, I don't, I'm not sure what they want, but... If it's at all reasonable, we should consider, because harm can be very painful. You want to start an atomic war. Look at them, living proof of what radiation does to the genes. You want to go back to that stupidity. Perhaps the proper inducement has not been used. Now, Professor. You will get us through the security system, or I will implode the young man's cranium. Whoa, let's, let's, talk, let's talk about this, guys, huh? It's better to sacrifice one life than the lives of millions. Why waste time? A little more pain. What does this accomplish? Is he dead? He's still breathing. Look, Hall, before you do anything crazy, you know, can I call you Hall? Um, I think you just better think this through a little bit. You mess with me and you get on the wrong side of a really tough dude. His name is Superboy and he eats aliens like you for breakfast. And he's looking for me right now. You and Superboy? You are acquainted? Yeah, we're as close as time and space. It's, it's, it's him and it's me and it's Clark. And Clark sent him a message, loud and clear. Perhaps a change in strategy is in order. That's what I like about you, Hall. You're always thinking. Well, if Superboy is as formidable as our record suggests, he should be able to get us past the security. Go, Vora, and bring him to us. The woman, Vora, tells Superboy that she is a mutant because in her time, all people but her have been affected by the radiation from the wars. Hello. We met briefly. On the uh, roof of the hotel. I haven't forgotten you. I have this blinding headache. I am sorry. That will not happen again. We have come as friends. That's why you kidnapped Professor Lipcott and T.J. White? An unforgivable breach. We had no choice. We're fighting for survival. And I suppose your survival depends on endangering the lives of others. Unfortunately, yes. It's the pressure I must use to force you to help us. So to this point, my friend and the professor are okay? Yes. Professor Lipcott has had some pain and is in a semi-conscious state, but he will recover with no ill effect. Oh, now please don't be angry. Look, there was a nuclear war. Some of the species did survive the radiation, but the survivors destroyed most technology, including all weapons of war. Then, through the years, Population of the Earth did increase slowly. Progress was made. Progress? To the point where nuclear weapons are needed again. 
We don't want war. Our enemies do. Don't you understand? It's the same talk before every war. Don't fall into that trap. You must tell your people that... I can't tell them. You don't know how hard I had to work to be accepted. I'm a mutant. Yes, a, a genetic throwback to the time before the Great War. Well, I know what it's like to be different from everyone else. There are no others like you in this era? None that I know of. At least you know where you come from. And you don't. there's going to be help for the people of your time, it won't come from a nuclear bomb. It's got to come from people like you. They uh, want me to bring you into the time machine. Let's go. In order to protect TJ and the professor, Superboy agrees to, to collect the plutonium, but he clearly doesn't believe the visitors should proceed in this manner. Superboy leads the two male visitors into the facility, scoops up the plutonium, and then speeds away from them. The visitors fire their weapons at the hero, but he deflects their beams back at them and incapacitating them. Superboy then heads into the ship and confronts Vora. Are you okay? Superboy, be careful. Don't trust her. They're taking Lipka back with them to build their bombs. You're all alone now, Vora. Your future depends entirely upon you. You brought the plutonium? Leave it. And you can take the boy. I can't do that, Laura. Don't push me, Superboy. I'm still one of them. You're more than they are. Leave the plutonium, or I'll kill him. How'd you know I wouldn't shoot? You and I have far too much in common. Well, you could have fooled me. Shulk agrees to let the professor and TJ go and leave the plutonium behind. She tells Superboy she was glad to have met him. The return trip will deplete most of our energy grid. We'll never have enough power to travel through time again. You don't have to go, do you? I belong with my people. Maybe they'll listen. I'm gonna miss you. All an ideal will be furious when they discover we left without the plutonium. I couldn't let you have it. It had to be returned. Goodbye, Superboy. I'll never forget you. At least the people of Vora's era will have a fighting chance of survival. Thanks to you, Super. Boy, who is he? I wanted to thank you. I'll tell him. You know something, Professor? I don't think any of us are going to forget her. Come in, TJ. TJ, where are you? Where are you, Clark? I'll tell you where I was. I was in a time machine where I met Lipcott and three of the strangest people. And you know something, Clark? It's a good thing your message got through to Superboy. All right, so... People from the future coming to steal plutonium. Do we know of anybody who ever went back into the past looking for and needed plutonium? Yeah, I'm guessing this writer saw Back to the Future too. <laughs> for those of us who remember that movie, Marty needed plutonium to power the time machine, but before he found and 
alternate power source to uh, power the machine back through time. This in this case, uh, Superboy is not going to give up the plutonium, and Vora is going to have to secure her world's future another way. So I like that aspect. I'm always a sucker for time travel stories. You know, I like the concept of time travel. It's it's a fun concept to play with. You know, time travel once in a while in a show is fine, unless of course you're a time travel show, and then that's the thing you do. But in a show like this, time travel once in a while is okay. There's an episode coming up that features time travel pretty heavily that I thought was a lot of fun. But uh, let's get into this one. Clark and TJ are covering a poetry reading. When Clark happens to see someone, we're going to find out that this is Professor Lipcott pulled into an elevator by a group of people in trench coats. That's uh, our woman, Vora, and her two uh, very tall and uh, very deformed uh, human pals. The episode is uh, wants us to believe that these guys are aliens from outer space or something and that Vora is the only human, but we are going to find out later on that all three of them are human, and the two uh, alien-looking guys are what passes for human in our century because they've all been infected by radiation. So Superboy follows them to the roof, and Vora has uh, a ring that she uses, and then to knock Superboy backwards and uh, phase into a wall. So we've got a mystery on our hands. Uh, one, Vora has a weapon that can knock Superboy backwards, and uh, they disappeared. The first clue is uh, where did they, they go. So now the episode makes an interesting choice in having Clark reporting the kidnapping of Professor Lipcott. I mean, I guess he can say that he saw Lipcott being pulled into the elevator and he seems to imply that he followed him to the roof. But Clark is telling uh, Detective Harris and this guy who the synopsis says is an FBI agent, I wasn't sure who he was while watching this, that about the disappearing ship and all that. And But, you know, Harris is there and he's vouching for Clark at least. Uh, I don't know why TJ's there at all. Apparently, he never made it to the uh, poetry recital, and uh, he said he was uh, photographing other opportunities outside the door. I'm guessing uh, TJ without photographing the other uh, lovely ladies of the evening. So, the FBI agent is not buying Clark's story. And, like I said, I'm not sure why he decided to do this as Clark and not as Superboy. I mean, Clark was not involved. I mean, I don't know. This all happened on the roof, so there's no telling who saw what, but Maybe if Superboy reported all these uh, otherworldly happenings, they'd be a little bit easier for this FBI agent to swallow because coming from Clark and with TJ cracking jokes next to him, Clark's not coming off as very credible. And I kind of like that because, I mean, you see it far too often when everybody just believes Clark. You know, yeah, I could, I don't mind seeing the, the uh, disbelief from a more experienced adult toward uh, you know, a very young adult. Having had previous interaction with Clark and TJ, Harris believes them. So now we move to this alien spaceship. And uh, in my notes, I, I was calling uh, these guys aliens because I wasn't aware that they were deformed humans. Basically, the uh, the normal, uh, what normal humans look like in the future. Very tall and very bald. So Vora, who looks human, at least human by 20th century standards, is a mutant. And they've come back in time because they need plutonium. And you, right away, you get a clue that they are involved in time travel when she says that Lipcott is the expert in the field in this era. So right there, that's a big giveaway that they're time travelers. And you don't even have to think about that very long because they pretty much confirm it within the next minute or two. And this is when they learned that there's no plutonium left on Earth. So they came back through time. You know, I mentioned Back to the Future looking for plutonium. It's almost more like Star Trek Four, which came out in 1986, so about three years before this, where Kirk and company on a Klingon uh, bird of prey that they stole 
went back in time to look for humpback whales because they could answer a probe and there were no humpback whales in the uh, 23rd century. So maybe it's a little more of a nod to Star Trek IV than uh, Back to the Future. So uh, Lippincott doesn't want to participate in an, in an obscene process, which means he doesn't want to participate in any kind of a nuclear weapons uh, production, which makes me wonder, uh, was he part of the Manhattan Project, which helped the Allies develop the atomic bomb during World War II? He looks like he could be old enough for that. So basically what they want is Lipcott to set up some kind of plutonium process for them. But he doesn't want to. And he's not going to do it easily. Let's just say that. So now our trio is going to investigate Clark's problem. And uh, Lana is getting them into the chemical plant. Now Clark is, tells DJ that he's going to leave a note for Superboy. And the music was kind of revving up. And uh, Clark was about to change. As uh, I do like the interruption where TJ comes in to come back to get him. and. Uh, then he's about to change, and then, oh, nope, he can't change yet. Because uh, TJ comes back to remind him that the van is in the shop, of all things. You know, again, still, I never really understood why he reported this incident as Clark. But it does give TJ a chance to give Clark a pep talk about self-confidence. So they get to uh, the chemical plant, and they're splitting up. Clark is still trying to get away, so he gives TJ a walkie-talkie. And that's when the ship appears in front of TJ, and out comes uh, Vora, our mutant woman. And she shoots a poorly animated ray at TJ, knocking him out. And this area, just from looking at some of the scenery, the greenery, and uh, some of the uh, structures in the background, looks a lot like the same place they shot the alien fight during the Revenge of the Alien episode at the end of the first part. Now, we do finally get a shirt rip as uh, Clark changes to Superboy. No skateboard this time, so that's good to know. I have watched the remainder of the season one episodes at, as of this uh, recording, and I am pleased to report that there are no more John Hames Newton skateboard shirt rips. Just thought I'd uh, throw that out there. So now TJ's been brought in front of the aliens and Vora and Lipcott's there and TJ's mouth is running away with him in front of the aliens. It looks like he's practicing his comedy routine. He's so nervous. And uh, some of these jokes he's making are not funny and I hope he wasn't planning on using them in his act. So, but the, uh, but Vora is amused by him and uh, <laughs> I was more amused by uh, one of the uh, non-mutant earthlings from the future saying that he talks too much. He talks much, but says nothing. I know quite a few people like that. Maybe we can rename the podcast. Mike talks much, but says nothing. I wonder if I can fit that on a show graphic. <laughs> so every time uh, TJ just tries to do comedy, it's just painful to listen to because the reality is, and uh, the show is not really hiding the fact that TJ is not good at his comedy. At least not his stand-up. He can be funny unintentionally in other ways. But Vora likes him, and... Uh, one of them offers to let Vora take him home as a pet. Just what she needs, a, a pet comedian. So now we're finding out that these uh, are humans from the future, and uh, they've been affected by radiation, and now we have a hostage situation. And But you know what? Professor Lipcott stands on his ground, and I like that. I gave him a lot of credit for strength of character because he is willing to sacrifice TJ to keep plutonium away from these uh, future Earthlings. So I'm giving him credit for his strength of character. I don't think TJ is very impressed, though. He wants to live. And uh, now he mentions Superboy, who apparently has appeared in the history books. And uh, they're going to use Superboy to uh, further their goals. And now TJ is a much more useful hostage than he was before. And now Superboy does not want to help them launch into war. He does not want to give them the plutonium despite the risk to TJ. And he doesn't want to assist in more killing, even if it's 400 years from now. So we do have a lot of our characters sticking to their convictions in this episode. I mean, and it's doubly troubling for Superboy because he doesn't know where he comes from. 
And he doesn't want to help them start a war. He wants to uh, build peace through ideas. And to be honest, I'm recording this on June 5th, about two weeks after the uh, the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis and the, some of the riots and the social unrest. We could use a little bit of uh, building peace through ideas right now because nothing else is doing the job. So hopefully by the time this uh, episode drops in August, things are better with both the uh, the race situation and the uh, coronavirus situation. Hopefully I'm doing more meaningful work at this point because as of right now, I've been out of work for two plus months and I'm, I'm going crazy here and not much prospect for employment right now. So moving on, you didn't come here to listen to me uh, muse about my job situation from two months earlier, at least as far as when you listen to this. So Superboy uh, looks like he's going to help them or at least try to help. But, you know, you can just tell that he's got something up his sleeve. You know, he's not going to give them plutonium despite the danger to DJ. So Superboy runs off with the plutonium and our two future heroes are shooting at him. He basically picks up the little box of plutonium and just flies off and uh, our future annoying the uh, handlers and uh, Superboy quickly dispatches the two men and captures them and brings them back to the ship. So he's dispatched these two guys, but he won't give the plutonium to Vora. Now he's maintaining his ground. Meanwhile, TJ's life is hanging in the balance, but it's clear that while she's threatening TJ and making a very good show of it, it's clear that she doesn't want to kill him. And Superboy, you know, it's that dramatic thing. Superboy's talking about building a better future. She doesn't need the plutonium. She can win with ideas, walking closer. And eventually, once she, Superboy gets within, when Superboy gets within arm's reach, she puts down the weapon. And everyone, at least, uh, in the present day, is saved. And she even asks Superboy how sh- he knew that she wasn't going to shoot. And Superboy can just tell when he can tell a good person when he sees one. So, Vor is going home without the plutonium, and hopefully, uh, his example will bring peace to the future. I mean, it would have been really cool if maybe they were from like the 29th century or something, and, you know, maybe some time before the Legion of Superheroes and uh, the legend builds from. What Vora tells her people in the future, and then that could eventually give rise to the Legion. That would be cool, but, you know, nobody thought of these things. So, we will never know what happens in the the future, but the spaceship will disappear. And, you know, as I'm watching this this spaceship, which looks like this, you know, kind of weird Lincoln log cabin here, I'm I'm kind of waiting for the TARDIS wine, but we don't get one. It just disappears. So, not really a ton to chew on in this episode. I did like Superboy's unwillingness to deal with Vora's demand for the, for the plutonium. I mean, it's his hope to, to try to create a better world through peace and level-headedness, you know, and not create the future through weapons of mass destruction. So that is definitely a message that is good for the future and it's good for now. Ideas, people, not war. And we could use a lot of that level-headedness right now. But it, the production values are low, and I really didn't care about the other two guys. You know, again, like I mentioned, this episode, can this show continues to... Be ambitious, but uh, can't quite pull off what it needs to do. So, with that being said, I'm going to take a quick break and play another promo, and then I'm going to come back with Phantom of the Third Division. Hang around, folks. Greetings, podcast listeners. My name is Charlie Neymar, and I host a show called Charlie's Geekcast, all about me and what I like, but mostly about what I like. 
2020 marks a pretty special year for me. For one thing, I'll be turning 40 this year. But this year also marks 10 years since I started podcasting by talking about Superman's adventures in the Bronze Age. Coincidentally, this year also marks 50 years since Superman entered the Bronze Age. To celebrate all of this, this year I'll be doing a series of episodes called Geeking on Superman in the Bronze Age, where I'll be looking at some great Bronze Age Superman adventures that I didn't get around to the first time around. It's a lot of around. So check out Charlie's GeekCast, part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network at twotruefreaks.com. Also, you can find the show at charliesgeekcast.com or wherever you get your podcast. All right, welcome back, folks. Going to finish this episode off with Phantom of the Third Division. This is uh, episode 22 of season one. Original broadcast date was April 29th, 1989. It was directed by David Nutter. This is his first of, I believe, 21 episodes of Superboy that he uh, directed. And this episode was written by Bernard M. Kahn. Guest cast include Bob Bouchard as the ambulance driver. The ambulance driver's name is Ted. Bobby Brandt as the punk. Kenny Kalman as punk three. Joseph Campanella as the phantom. The phantom's actual name is Tom. Fran Gauchi as the clerk. Jane Glick as the crop duster. Salome Jens as Martha Kent, Artie Molesky as Punk 2, and Stuart Whitman as Jonathan Kent. And our synopsis is brought to you by supermanhomepage.com, your number one source for Superman information on the web. A man called the home of Jonathan and Martha Kent tells Martha he's an army buddy of her husband's and asks to speak with him. Hello? I'd like to talk to Jonathan Kent. He's not here right now. Can I ask who's calling? old army buddy. We were in the Korean War together. Oh, well, this is Mrs. Kent. When will he be back? He went to the bus depot to pick up our son. He'll be back soon. Can I ask who's calling? I'm sure he'd love to see you. Meanwhile, Clark, Lana, and TJ arrive at the bus depot and await Jonathan, who is expected to pick them up. Clark goes to call his father. TJ goes to check on his bag of jokes, and Lana heads to a nearby florist to pick up some flowers for Mrs. Kent. On her way, though, some bikers who want to take her for a ride accost Lana. A fight ensues. TJ, Clark, and even Jonathan eventually show up to put things in their place. Later, Clark and his friends head out of town to go have fun, while Jonathan stays at home with Martha. Another mysterious call from the stranger comes in. This is Dr. Williams. Calling from the emergency room of a Smallville County Hospital. I'm afraid your son's been in an accident. An accident. He's asking for his father. What kind of an accident? Automobile. Oh, that tractor. First it was the Jeep, but now it's the tractor. <laughs> Must be something in the air. That was a call from the emergency room of the Smallville Hospital. There's been a car accident. Oh, Ma, there's nothing to worry about. We know that nothing can happen to Clark. He said that Clark was asking for you. Lana TJ must be hurt. You stay by the phone. I'll go to the hospital. Upon his arrival, Jonathan is kidnapped by his old army buddy, tied up in an ambulance, and driven away. When the kids get back home, Martha tells them about the call, and Clark heads out alone in search of his father. Turning into Superboy, Clark flies to the hospital, speaks with the driver, who says, No, Superboy, there's no Dr. Williams on the roster. But he did call from here, though. It wasn't me, and I've been on the desk all afternoon. Superboy. You're breaking into a conversation, Ted. It's okay. Nice to meet you. Okay, what is it, Ted? Uh, I think someone stole my ambulance. 
Maybe you just misplaced it. Try looking in the lost and found. Very funny. No chance I misplaced it. I went inside to do my paperwork, and when I came out, it was gone. Well, don't drag your feet. Report it to transportation. Who'd be dumb enough to steal an ambulance, anyway? At the same time, Jonathan is being made to crawl through barbed wire training course while his stalker friend fires rounds at him from the sidelines. Kidnapper accuses Jonathan of leaving him behind during the Korean War to be tortured by the enemy. Tom, what the hell is the matter with you? Now you better listen to me. No, shut up. You listen to me. You recognize me, huh? Even with this, this thing covering the scars on my face. Of course I recognize you. Why did you do it, Jonathan? Why did you leave me out there all alone? I didn't abandon you. We searched all over for you. You disappeared. We lost two men. We were ordered back to the base. We still couldn't find you. Not good enough, Jonathan. Not after all I've been through. What are you going to do? They didn't tell me, so I'm not going to tell you. Look at this, Jonathan. Look at that. What's that? That's what the North Koreans may be wear as a prisoner of war. I've been saving it all these years so I can throw it in your face. I've got something appropriate for you, too. Look familiar, Jonathan? Don't be crazy, Tom. It wasn't my fault! Yes, damn it, it was your fault. Now put that on. No! Put it on. Jonathan is eventually scooped into a net trap, and his old acquaintance plans to shoot him in the face with an arrow, as old Korean captors once did to him. Superboy arrives just in time to stop the arrow, and Jonathan talks his old comrade into loading his weapon. I don't want to kill you, just him. Once the killing starts, it gets out of control. Let me handle this. Tom, it's me, your friend, Captain Ken. The North Koreans, they're the enemies, not me. Get down! Attack any second. Here they come! It's over. It's been over a long time. It's over? Yeah. It's over. Did we win? War makes losers of all of us. Especially me, Jonathan. Jonathan, look what it did to me. Look, look, look. There's no scar. Of course there is. Can't you see it? It's an inner scar. We can't see it, but it's there. A lot deeper. And the pain won't go away. Tom, it's gonna work out. Yeah, I promise you it's all gonna work out. Come on now. Come on. I'm sorry, Jonathan. I'm sorry. After realizing the man has been mentally scarred since the war, Jonathan takes it upon himself to make sure his old friend gets safely back to the mental hospital while Clark and his friend staying at home with Lana. I hope you understand I won't be able to spend the rest of the day with you. That's no problem. <laughs> I want to thank you for showing up when you did yesterday. It's the least I can do, Paul. Martha, I'll see you tomorrow at noon. Uh, you be careful. Oh, yes, I will.
I've always prided myself on being a compassionate person, but I don't see why your father has to drive him back to the sanitarium. That man's lived a nightmare all these years, living in the terrors of the prison camp. I guess Pa feels they were there for each other in Korea, and he wants to be there for him now. I know, but I just can't get it out of my mind that he almost killed your father. Oh, I know you're right. I just need some time. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my... You know, Clark, I think your mother would be very reluctant to invite us over again. Not unless we bring her own dishes. <laughs> All right, so like I mentioned uh, in the opening, this episode is the first time, that, at least that I can recall, that it's been mentioned that Jonathan had fought in a previous war. It is something that I also saw in the post-crisis comics. Well, actually, I believe uh, Jonathan being in the war showed up in the comics during the World of Smallville miniseries that John Byrne did in 86, I think. Because I think it was John Byrne. So that would have predated this show by a few years, so. This show is probably taking uh, that aspect of Jonathan's character from the comics. And this is the first time the show brings it up, though. And it brings it up in a really big way, tackling uh, things like uh, mental illness and what the horrors of war, the effects have on the soldiers that come home. You know, yeah, soldiers that some, not all the soldiers die in war, but they do come back, you know, badly damaged and uh, have scars that you can't see. That affects their relationships, their ability to work, and just leaves them in need of services that are not always readily available, unfortunately. But this episode, you know, as all of these shows do, pay lip service to these things, and uh, it's really more about the uh, trying to find Jonathan than uh, anything else. So we are standing on the Ken farm and uh, to start the episode, and uh, Ma Kent looks like she's coming in from feeding the chickens or something, and... Uh, she gets a call from a guy who says he's an old war buddy of Jonathan Kent, but the it's not a friendly phone call as he hangs up abruptly on Martha, and she's left confused and a little worried. Obviously, I, re I recognize uh, Roy Campanella's voice right away. I mean, I've seen him in a couple of things, but mostly from the one episode of Lois and Clark that he appears in, uh, Strange Visitor, the uh, second episode of the series. And, of course, then I get a good look at his face uh, when the camera pans around, and, uh, He's got blonde hair here. Apparently, he uh, goes gray rather quickly. Um, unless his hair is dyed here for some reason. I don't know why it would be. But uh, when he shows up in uh, Lois and Clark about four years after this, he's got mostly salt and pepper hair. Mostly salt. And the phone call, like I mentioned, is the first hint we get of Jonathan Kent having served uh, in the war. So the whole crew, uh, at least from Schuster University, is in Smallville this episode. It's not... Just Clark this time. Uh, TJ and Lana are with him. Uh, Lana finally uh, earned a trip home. You know, obviously, uh, I could see Lana going home at the same time Clark does. Uh, it's both of their hometowns. Plus, it's kind of odd that two, that two best friends from home uh, both went to the same university. But, you know, that is what it is. You need to have Lana in the story. So they, they both go to college from Smallville. And uh, TJ just uh, kind of tags along. Well, you know, he's their friend. So why wouldn't he come along, too? I guess they're on a break from school or something. I like the uh, running joke over the course of the episodes about how bad TJ's comedy is because Lana basically points out that there's basically no point in him going back to the, to the bus for the joke book that he forgot because the jokes aren't that good anyway. But there are some guys on motorcycles that show up that it costs Lana. And 
Clark and TJ fight these guys off in a hilarious scene. And, you know, Clark just kind of pushes them around a little bit and they fall over things. And uh, But the real treat at the end of this scene is as soon as he sees what's going on, Jonathan Kent comes flying into the fight and starts punching, punching people. I just love watching this Jonathan Kent beat people who threaten those that he loves. I like tough Jonathan. And hoping to see more of this as we uh, as we go through. You know, Eddie Jones was the uh, wise uh, sage Jonathan Kent. Uh, and, you know, Stuart Whitman's Jonathan Kent is as well. But uh, there's a toughness to this Jonathan Kent that I really find appealing. So we get a little bit more on our Roy Campanella's character. And he's uh, hearing voices in his head and is, uh, is in pain. So he's experiencing some kind of flashback to the war. I mean, they're both in the army, so you make the connection to the war very quickly. And uh, he wants to uh, rent out this hangar for the week. And he really wanted the hangar because he overpaid for it. I think he gave him $1,000 or something in 1989 money. So about $1,000 in 1989 money would be uh, about $2,068 today. So, And the owner of the hangar says he would have rented it out to him for six months for that kind of money so i find it hard to believe that the airplane hangar rents for uh 167 dollars a month seems a little bit cheap but anyway the uh it is what it is he's got a thousand bucks and he's got it for a week and you could tell he's very ominous because the landlord asked if he he minds uh telling uh, him what he wants the hangar for and he basically just says i mind very ominous so you see the mask on uh Roy Campanella's face here, apparently, uh, the mask and the title are supposed to invoke the images of the Phantom of the Opera. I'll be fit, I'll be honest, I know absolutely nothing about the Phantom of the Opera. It's one of my sister's, uh, favorite musicals. Maybe I should have asked her a little bit about it, but I didn't. So, we'll just have to, uh, acknowledge my ignorance on that and move on. But obviously, the mask is a very famous image. So, I do wonder what the point of the motorcycle guys was, other than to make Clark look tough for a minute and to, uh, Show Jonathan whooping some ass, which is always welcome. If, somebody, if, they, if Lois the Clock ever gave Eddie Jones a scene like that, probably would have had a heart attack. So Martha is worried about her phone call, and uh, she suspected hatred in uh, the voice on the other end. And it's hard to get a read on Pa Kent here immediately. I don't know if he's uh, either not taking the call seriously, or perhaps he's trying to put a brave face on so Martha doesn't worry any more than she already is. I mean... When she walks away, you know, the kind of the music gets a little more ominous, and uh, he does have a look of concern on his face. So, you know, something that first crossed my mind when uh, Clark, Lana, and TJ uh, go into town with the Kent's truck, this truck is outdated by 1989 standards. I mean, this looks like a 1950s, 1960s truck. And it will be established in the series finale that they have the same truck from when they found Clark's spaceship. So, why don't the Kent's ever buy a new truck? I mean, how much is he taking care of this truck that it's still in running shape all these years later it just it looks out of place now all of a sudden the tractor's not working and uh pa says that there's something in the air but we know that's not it apparently uh jonathan stalker is uh committing acts of sabotage and in addition to making uh worrying phone calls so now we get a phone call that reports clark was in an accident i mean obviously we all know that clark was not could not be hurt in a car accident but lana and tj could be and I'm pretty much guessing that the only reason to bring Lana and TJ around is, one, they're paying Stacey Heideck and uh, Jim Calvert. they got to put them in the episodes. And this doesn't work if Clark's there by himself. 
because if they hear Clark was in an accident, yeah, they know Clark was okay. But there is a threat of such a thing to Lana and TJ. So, no one's going to want to wonder what is Paul going to find at the hospital. Well, he finds his old army buddy who pulled a gun on him, and uh, you're immediately led to believe that they had some bad history. I thought for sure that we were going to get a conversation right here, but we don't, as the next time we see Jonathan in about a few seconds is he's in a straitjacket as the ambulance drives off. So now, after hearing that Clark went to the hospital, because all of a sudden, Jonathan's at the hospital, and uh, the kids come back, and they're all, hey, where's Paul? I heard you guys were in an accident. The truck is fine. The kids are fine. Uh, no accident here. So now Clark is going to uh, head to the hospital, and he's going to leave uh, TJ and Lana with Ma, and Ma is going to keep Lana and TJ away from the kitchen, because every time they go in the kitchen, they break something. And I kind of... Clark drives off in the truck, you know, mostly for the benefit of Lana and TJ. I got to wonder how far he'd drive before changing into Superboy, but he doesn't drive very far. I thought maybe he'd have driven a little bit further to, before ditching the truck because what happens if Lana or TJ come come out and see the truck? It's like, hmm, well, where's Clark? Well, there's some questions. I guess there are no answers. So Clark is headed off to the hospital to find Jonathan. Oh, by the way, when he changes into the Superboy costume, a little bit of blue is visible beneath the top of his uh, checkerboard button down. Very rarely does Clark button his shirt all the way up because he doesn't, he never wears a tie on this show. And, uh, so sometimes the blue of his costume is a little bit visible in the top there, especially right before a shirt rip. So apparently, uh, we get now back to the airplane hangar where, uh, our phantom, his name is Tom, has uh, set up a training course for Jonathan to go through. Yeah, I think Jonathan's a little bit old for this. So this is where we learned that Tom was a POW and he believes that Jonathan left him there to die. Jonathan says they did, and they were ordered back, but yeah, Tom doesn't care. So this is when we learn that uh, Ted, the ambulance driver, reported his ambulance is missing, and this irritating nurse is giving him all kinds of crap. And uh, I think Superboy is starting to make some connections here between the fact that there's no Dr. Williams at the hospital and the missing ambulance, the missing paw, all that stuff is starting to kind of come together for him, and... Superboy now flies off knowing that he's, uh, that his father's in trouble and he has no idea where to look. So here we go. Now we're back in the airplane hangar. Now we've got pissed off Jonathan Kent. And this is where we learn that Jonathan's unit tried to find Tom wherever he was, but they lost two men in the search and were ordered back by their commanding officers. Jonathan wasn't the only other person in the division. So at first I was wondering why Tom was so- solely pinning the blame on Jonathan, unless of course, uh, Jonathan was in command. So Tom is making Jonathan kind of run the boot camp drill here as he shoots at him. And uh, fortunately, Superboy hears this before Jonathan gets netted. And now Tom is shooting poisoned arrows at Jonathan, who apparently was a captain in the army, according to Tom. Captain Kent, which somehow I can't see Farmer Jonathan becoming an officer unless he was an enlisted man long enough to, I don't know, unless he was in some other branch of the military other than the army. Very hard for an enlisted man to become a captain. You know, I could see that if he was a sergeant, but I don't think he'd ascend to the rank of captain. But anyway, a Superboy shows up and uh, he saves Jonathan from getting defaced by a poison arrow. Of course, he caught it at the last second just before it hits Jonathan's face. So, understandably, Jonathan wanted to charge at Tom for revenge, but uh, he would have set off a tripwire and uh, would have made Superboy rescuing him kind of pointless if he blew himself up that way. But I do like what follows. Superboy just marches through this exploding training course unharmed. And you know, I've said it before. I like 
John Hayes to do it in the Super Bowl when he acts tough. Because this is another one. He's ready to knock this guy into next week. And uh, But Jonathan, meanwhile, wants to get through to Tom. So now he's having flashbacks to the war. He's clearly scarred from it. You know, I said it before. War does horrible things to those that survive and come back. And Alex, the other point that Jonathan makes that, you know, no one really wins in a war, especially the people fighting it. They're really the biggest losers. And when I say that, I want to emphasize I'm not saying that the soldiers are losers by definition, but because the price they pay for fighting the war, at least for them, to me, doesn't seem worth it. They don't reap the benefits of fighting that war, at least in my eyes. Maybe they feel differently. And now Tom's personality has shifted, and he's a lot more docile. So there is a, there's a lot going on in Tom's head here, and really none of it good. And he clearly needs some help. He needs to uh, get back to the hospital so he can get whatever care that he needs. You know, he paid a terrible price for the war, and uh, he needs to get back what he can. And now we learn that the scar that the mask is covering is all in his head. He has no physical scar, just mental ones. So, with this ended, and uh, apparently uh, Tom's personality is kind of snapped back to, I guess, normal is the best way to put it. He's not falling back into the war, but Jonathan is going to take him back to the mental hospital where he can get the care that he needs. Ma is having trouble reconciling what Tom did versus Pa's desire to help, but this is something between Jonathan and Tom, and obviously Jonathan feels an obligation to him, especially if he was under, com- under his command. There's a very, you know, people who fight in wars together or even go through any kind of hell together. These are the things that forge bonds between people. And these are, I mean, my uncle ha- who was in Vietnam, he meets with, I don't remember what division of the service, what branch of the service he was in, but he meets up with his unit about once a year. Over the summer, they have uh, reunions, and uh, they get together, and uh, these are bonds that are forged for life, and so is this one. And Pa wants him to get help and get better, and despite what he did to him, and that is an admirable quality. You want to know what's not an admirable quality? Lana and TJ's uh, prowess in the kitchen, because they're breaking dishes. They're breaking another dish. It's the second time they broke something, and... Uh, Ma is probably going to run them out of the kitchen with a shotgun soon. <laughs> and they do like a lot of quip about bringing their own dishes. Maybe they don't have to bring their own dishes, but maybe they shouldn't be washing them after the meal. That's all. So this was a much better episode, and I'm glad I finished up with that episode as opposed to the first one I covered. Because when you have the good episode first, it makes it hard to get through the second one sometimes. But there was a lot to like in this episode. You know, it tried to address the horrors of war in 20 minutes. Hard to do, but I think it did as good a job as it could while keeping up with the uh, adventurous spirit of the show. So I liked that episode. Next time, this will be my penultimate episode covering season one, and I'll cover Black Flamingo and Hollywood. In the meantime, if you want to leave feedback, it's always welcome. Manascreen at gmail.com. If you want to join the conversation over at the Facebook group, just put Manascreen Podcast in your search feed, and the show should come up. You can also find the show on Twitter at Manascreencast. Till next time, folks. We're all on the same team. Good night. The Man of Spring Podcast is produced by Mike Zumo 
and all opinions expressed on the show are those of Mike Zemo and his guests and no one else. All music and sound clips used on the show are for review purposes only and no copyright infringement is intended. All music and sound clips are copyrighted their original copyright owners. The Man of Screen is a member of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network and can be found at www.twotruefreaks.com. Email to this show can be sent to manofscreen at gmail.com. And you can also leave the show review on iTunes. That will help others find the show. Thank you for listening to the Man of Screen Podcast.